0: Good evening, everybody. How are we doing? Good. It's a good turnout tonight. Uh, well, I wanted to welcome everybody and thank you all for coming to Keys to Effective Bible Study. If you were under the impression that this was Equip Disciple Gap, you're in the wrong room, but you should stay. So um, we're going to get started. First, I'm going to introduce the two of us. Nate is going to be my co-teacher here this the next five weeks, and then we'll pray, and then we'll, we'll get underway. And so um, if you don't know me, my name is Nyka Spaulding, and the reason why I chose this picture is because it has the three most important things in the world to me. The first one is the cross around my neck. And I have to say that, but it's also true. The next are the babies that I'm holding, Jaden and Nixon, my niece and nephew. And if you're a part of the Women's Bible Study, you know that to be true. They show up a lot. Um, and then finally, and hopefully always third in importance, but sometimes it creeps up there, boomer sooner for any OU fans in here. So, uh, And then I also have the privilege of being the women's equipping coordinator here at Watermark. And so, shameless plug, if there's any other equipping opportunities and you're female, there's a chance that you'll probably run into me. And so, welcome you all to start Bible study, which begins the week after this class ends, if you're not aware. And so, this is my counterpart, Nathan Wagnon.
1: Yeah, hey, how are you guys doing tonight? <clears throat> So, uh, I w- I'm just curious, how many of you are like part of the cult Nika Spaulding following from Women's Bible Study? Anybody?
0: I nice. am too. She's the talking founding about. member. Yeah. <laughs>
1: <laughs> <laughs> we like to give Nika a hard time. She's, uh, she's, she's too humble to tell you, but she's, uh, she's really, a really gifted theologian. And so, I'm uh, really, really privileged to be up here to uh, share this time with her and with you. But uh, you'll see, uh, this is my family. That's my beautiful bride, Margaret, and my uh, 15-month-old son, Nate, who is probably the cutest kid I've ever seen. Um,
0: Except for my niece and nephew. Fairly
1: biased, but yeah. you know, I mean. Um, and then, yeah, I, uh, I just recently came on staff, and I serve in kind of NICA's counterpart for the uh, men's ministry as the men's equipping coordinator, which means I lead the apologetics ministry, uh, which is the great questions team. So my shameless plug is uh, if you know of anyone who has questions that are keeping them from the faith and uh, and would would like to push them our way, we'd love for you to do that. So we meet every Monday night um, from 730 to 830 in conjunction with uh, Regeneration. All right. And um, also oversee Equip Disciples. So um, if you're looking for Actually, this class may be a good launching pad into that ministry. So we'll we'll give you information as we go, but we're glad you're here, and we're excited to uh, to be sharing this time with you.
0: All of us up in prayer. Um, If you'll bow your heads with me, Heavenly Father, uh, it is no small thing when people raise their hand and say, "I'd like to know more about the Mm -hmm. Word." Um, Father, ultimately, your Word reveals you, and knowing you is for our good and for your glory. And so, allow Nathan and I to be clear. Allow us to be concise. Um, allow us to be true in what we say tonight and how we equip these folks and ourselves in the study of your word. It's in your son's perfect and holy name we ask this. Amen. Amen.
1: All right, so I'm going to do a, uh, a brief a brief, brief, a brief overview. Do we um, do we have the overview thing? Yeah, there we go. Um, so some of you guys, when you walked in tonight, uh, saw that there's a, a table out there that we're selling uh, this book, Journey into God's Word, uh, by Scott Duvall and Danny Hayes. Um, I don't, we may even be out of them right now. I know that we're ordering more so when you come in the future You can pick one up or I would encourage you just go on amazon and get your own copy or um, wherever you're you buy a book But tonight what we're going to do is we're going to cover the various genres of literature that are in uh, Scripture and and is going to walk us through that We're also going to cover context and the importance of context for uh, an accurate inter- interpretation and application Of of god's uh, written word right Then next week um, next week, I'm going to kind of take that time, take charge more of that time and walk you through uh, the uh, discipline of observation. That is looking at the text and just, hey, what do we see there? And, and ensuring that we're, lo- that we're finding everything and, and uh, uh, taking everything that's in the text into account when we walk into interpretation, which will be week three. All right. NICA is, is going to take that. So we're going to kind of tag team this class. So week three will be interpretation. That is, hey, let's, let's draw the meaning out of the text, and, and, uh, and then that will set us up to, uh, to deal with week four, which will be application. How do we apply uh, God's word, written word accurately to our lives? And then the last week is going to kind of be a synthesis class where we tie everything together, and, uh, and there will be uh, some, some uh, Q&A for you as well as we review the material that we've gone through. Okay, Does that make sense to everybody? Um, I would also say before we get started that uh um, there's a well there's a mic over here we we would like for this to be an interactive time um, as long as the question that you're asking uh pertains to what we're talking about <laughs> all right so so uh if if we table a question then it's no offense to you it's just we want to stay on track but i do we do want you to feel the freedom to uh to ask questions okay um, so why are we here? Why do we study the text Second um, Timothy chapter two verse fifteen says do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who does not need to be ashamed, and who correctly handles the word of truth. All right? So as, I've, as I've, been a, I've been a student of, of Scripture for um, for a long time, really since I was a kid, and, and I, as I thought about what I would say tonight when we talk about um, why do we take classes like this, um, there is... Uh, there is something fundamental about uh, God as creator, that he has created us in his image and that we are created to be in a relationship with him, right? And so when, when, when we come to Scripture, we don't come to Scripture as, as an, a necessarily an academic exercise. Um, it, it is that, but it's that plus, plus some. It's that plus more. And, and ultimately, what, we, what we're doing when you come to Scripture is, is that you're encountering a faithfully transcribed um, written text that is revealing who God is, right? So, so when, when, uh, um, when John wrote da- sat down to write his gospel, um, at the very beginning of his gospel, he said, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. And then skip down to verse 14, and it says, And that Word, the Word of God... Did what? It became, it became flesh. And we saw Him. Right? So, so this is not just like a book that we study so I can feel better about myself, or a book that we study so that um, I, I can be the, win an argument or be right. This is a book that we study because, because it is the written transcription that is testifying about God Himself. We, we, we study and we accurately interpret and we accurately apply Scripture because... Um, we are encountering God, right? And so um, ultimately, that's, that's why it's so important that we accurately handle the word of truth because we, we don't want to, as A.W. Tozer said in The Knowledge of the Holy, we don't want to be people who are worshiping a false god. We don't want to be a people that that come to the text and we say, well, I'm just going to make this mean whatever I want it to mean and all the baggage that I'm bringing to the table and just interpreting it however I want, just like kind of a loose cannon. Then ultimately what you're doing is you're fashioning a God of your own making, elevating a God of your own making, and then worshiping that God. And so as as A.W. Tozer says in that book, he says, Lord, um, let us worship you for who you are, not as someone that I would make you. Right? And so, man, the next five weeks, for, for a lot of you guys maybe that have never done anything like this, this is going to be really foundational for you. Um, not because you're going to walk away here and be like, oh, now I've got all the right answers. But, but hopefully um, what, what we'll be able to do is give you tools so that you can take what, is, what God has, has faithfully preserved for us and, and accurately um, observe, interpret, and apply it to your life. And in so doing, you will see God. Right? that's awesome. <laughs> and so let's, 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 uh, let's not water this down to just, okay, now I'm going to turn the text and hopefully it says, you know, let's, let's, let's see it for what it is. And, uh, and, and so I'm super excited, um, as you can tell, um, that, that we're doing this. All right. Nyka.
0: Yeah, so just to kind of continue on that uh, on that point, like Nate was saying with A.W. Tozer, that when you do have poor study, poor study is going to lead to bad theology, and then bad theology is going to lead to chaotic living. And so just some funny examples of when, when bad theology comes into play. If you guys haven't read Habakkuk, it's in the Old Testament. We'll get there. Um, in Habakkuk 1, verse 5, he says, I'm going to do something in your day that you wouldn't believe. And you could tattoo that across your back, because that sounds awesome, right? I'm going to do something amazing. And then you keep reading, and you realize what God was saying in that moment was that he was going to send a foreign nation in to absolutely tear apart the Israelites to teach them discipline about his law. And then you think, okay, never mind. I actually don't want that on my back, right? Or how many of y'all have been jogging? I love going to marathons and watching people suffer, and I'm like, why would you do that? And uh, and then they all like have like their Philippians 4:13 shirts as they run by and I want to be like that's bad theology. never mind just you do you man and so right I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength and I'm like well yeah but what when you read Philippians 4 it's really talking about Paul saying I'm content in all circumstances and so what I hope they mean when they put that on their shirt is that like even though I'm hating my life right now I can find contentment even though I'm running 26.2 miles. If you are a marathon runner, I just want to point out the fact that the first marathon runner ever died. So you look it up. Uh, so yeah, so that's, you know, that's a funny way of looking at it. But then you also hear things in Matthew where he says, hey, if your hand causes you to sin or your eye causes you to sin, cut it out. And if you have poor theology, you might take that literally where you, you cut off your hand or you cut out your eye and you maim yourself. And, any, and an understanding of the Old Testament would lead you to understand that, hey, God doesn't want you to maim your body. That instead, what Jesus was saying is, I want you to take a radical approach to eradicate sin from your life. And that's a very different thing than chopping off your hand. And so if you were considering doing that, hang with us five more weeks. Uh, if we don't convince you in five weeks, then, you know, make sure you get something really sharp. Uh, otherwise, it'll hurt. Just kidding. Don't quote me. All right. So we've, we've covered why do we do that. So what is the Bible exactly, right? This is a fair question, because some people, when you open up your Bible, have more than 66 books. Or sometimes when you're reading or watching the History Channel, they'll tell you that the Gospel of Thomas or other books should have been included in the Bible. And so we want to clarify for you, what is the Bible? What we would say the Bible is, is actually just the 66 books. 39 in the Old Testament that go from Genesis to Malachi, and then 27 in the New Testament that go from Matthew to Revelation. And then with those 66 books, we know that they are originally written in two predominant languages and then a third one. And so the Old Testament was written in Hebrew. So if you're going to tattoo the Old Testament, of course, you need it in Hebrew. Um, and then the New Testament was written in Greek. And then a little bit of Daniel was written in Aramaic. And so by and large, for the most part, when you're reading your English translation of the Bible, that is what it is, is a translation from a text that was written a long time ago in two very different languages. In addition to being written in those languages, we have about 40 different authors that we think wrote, wrote the Bible. And why we say approximately is there are a couple of books. We're not entirely sure on authorship, Hebrews being one of them as well as others. But somewhere in the ballpark of 40 authors written over 1,500 years of time. And so to give you an idea of the bookends of that time, you've got Moses who's coming out of the Exodus. A conservative estimate of time for that would be about 1446 B.C. Moses coming out of the Exodus. He's writing to the Israelites the the first five books of the Bible. And then we span all of that time. And then we've got John writing Revelation around 90 A.D., somewhere in that ballpark. And so you've got 1,500 years of time Going into this one book, and what is so incredible is despite the language differences, despite the 40 different authors, despite the 1,500 years, it all screams one unified message of redemption. That the Old Testament echoes that a Messiah is coming. And then the New Testament goes, he's here. And then in light of that, how do we live? And it's this one incredible story about all of us being made sinners because of our choices, a kind God reaching down to humanity, sending his perfect son to live and die a perfect life, rise from the grave and save us. And that is powerful. And that's ultimately why we study this book. It's not because, like Nate said, we want to win arguments or because it's really cool. Or there's that game show, right? Have you all seen that game show network with Jeff Foxworthy? I am so considering going on that. If anybody wants to be on my team, I just need two teammates. None of my friends will do it. But yeah, so that's the message. That's the gospel. And that's why we study this Bible. And so it's pretty incredible when you think about the span of time, the span of authorship, and God breathing into existence this one story about his perfect son for us. And so that's the Bible. And so today what we're going to talk about is then how how then do you begin to interpret this? Because you go, hey, when I open up my Bible, sometimes it sounds poetic. And then sometimes it sounds factual. And then sometimes it talks about like blisters on my body. And so, you know, there's all that, that, those different genres in the Bible. And one of the first steps to understanding any piece of literature, the Bible included, is reading it for the genre that it was intended to be read in. And so what do I mean by that? Well, if I were to walk in here, and I had different bu- books set up here, and I didn't show you the cover, and I opened one up, and you started reading, and let's say it said, hey, fish are, you know, have scales, and they have bones, and they're chordates, and all that stuff, and it said frogs are amphibians, and turtles are reptiles, and I would say, hey, what kind of book is this? Most of you go, oh, this is a science textbook, I know this, this is making facts, this is making claims, I go, great, and take that one away, and then I grab another one, I open it up, and it's an iambic pentameter, and you start reading it, and I would go, what is this? And you go, oh, that's poetry that's Shakespeare and then I would ask you would you read these the same way and anybody who's gone through the 12th grade or even really the 10th grade English would go no that's silly right and if you'd say arise you know fair sun and kill the envious moon would I tell you that the moon is therefore capable of jealousy you'd be like no that's silly nobody does that well, sometimes we don't realize it, but we apply that same silliness to the Bible, right? An example would be sometimes people read the Psalms and it makes a claim about how the world revolves around the sun or the sun around the earth, and somebody goes, oh, the Bible's inaccurate. See that, that right here, David wrote this, and that's not how the world works. And I'm going, hey, it's, it's poetry. It's, it's different. And so when the first steps of understanding your Bible is asking yourself, what kind of genre am I in? And so moving forward with that, um, you're going to notice that certain books have different kinds of genre, and even certain books have multiple genres within them. And so, what do I mean by that? Well, you've got, you've got Romans, which for the most part is epistle, and we'll talk about that, but there's also some poetry in it. And so, when you get to those verses, you're thinking, okay, how do I address poetry? Because that's different than narrative, which is different than wisdom literature, which is different than the law, and so on and so forth. And so, what we're going to do tonight is we're going to spend a good deal of time walking you through the different genres what makes them unique, and then how you want to go about reading those types of genres. And so I would encourage you, anytime you're going to tackle a a book of the Bible, so let's say you're in the Women's Bible Study, which starts in five weeks, the book of Mark, um, that's narrative, and so we're going to read that as narrative, and we're going to walk through that in that way. And so anytime you're starting to study a book, go, hey, what genre am I in? And So the first one right off the bat is the law. This is composed primarily of legal material, and so when you think of the law, think of Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. If you'll notice on that chart that we gave you where the the books are on the bookshelf, this is sometimes also called the Pentateuch, or sometimes called the Torah. We believe that Moses wrote all five of these books, um, and they're they're for the most part a unit, and what they are is they're giving the sort of the rules and regulations for the Israelites. There's also narrative within it, but these are by and large broad strokes legal material. And so when you open Leviticus, the book that nobody reads, you just skip over, when you get there and it's saying, hey, this is what you do in these circumstances, that is supposed to be read in a a legal mindset of going, okay, here are the do's and don'ts. Here are the boundaries that a good God has set to help his people commune with him. So that when he tells them, hey, be holy as I am holy, he's going to show them, how do I go about this holiness? What are the boundaries for which we can maintain relationship with you? So that's the law. The next type of genre that you might run into is narrative, and this is composed primarily of stories told for the purpose of conveying a certain message. Uh, one of the features of narrative that you'll see when Jesus speaks are parables, so he's telling a story, and he's saying, hey, when, when a rich young ruler comes to him, he goes, hey, I'm telling you, it's harder for a camel or to enter through a needle's eye than it is for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of heaven, and you're going wait, what? And he's not, at, he's not daring you to anatomically squish a camel through a needle's eye, but he's making this metaphor and going, hey, it's really difficult for people who have a lot of wealth and have a lot of pre- prestige and have a lot of opportunity for them to want to forsake that and follow me. That's what he's ultimately saying. And so the narrative books that you'll see, they, they span both the Old Testament and the New. Uh, you've got Joshua, Judges, Ruth, so on and so forth. One of the features of that, like I said, you'll have parables You'll also have metaphors. Um, you'll have figures of speech. You guys know that you've read uh, literature, right? You've read Harry Potter, I assume, or what is, like, Divergent. Is that what you kids are reading these days? I don't, I don't know. Whatever the ki- cool kids are reading. Right, there's certain laws of, of narrative that you can apply to the biblical text, There are times that the author is using metaphors. There are times that he's using similes. There's times that he's using hyperbole. And that would be an example of what we talked about earlier in the Matthew 5. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. That's hyperbole. That's not legal material. Are you all tracking with me? Are we good on that? All right. So the next one, then, is poetry. Oh, you want to go back? Go back. This is interactive, so you can control the teacher's. Start, stop, all of that. And just as a reminder, it's a great time to let you know. We will post these slides online in addition to the notes that you're holding in your hand. So um, if you don't get it all taken down, then you can have the opportunity to, to pull them off from online.
1: Yeah, and if you do have a question, if you'll just raise your hand, I'll bring you the mic. All right? Cool.
0: All right, the next one being poetry. And so you guys... Poetry is language stated in parallel form for the most part. And so uh, poetry in English, right? Roses are red, violets are blue, Urkel's a geek, and so are you. How many of y'all memorize that in the first grade? It's amazing what your mind will help you memorize, but scripture is just like, right? Spiritual battle there. But poetry in English, for the most part, uses meter, uses rhyming, things of that nature. That is not the case for Hebrew poetry. And so when you're reading Hebrew poetry, one of, the, one of the things they talk about is parallel form. And so what you'll see is you'll read a piece of scripture, and it'll have one statement, and then the immediate statement under it is related to it. And you have to read them in couplets, and sometimes in triplets. And so as you're reading scripture, sometimes you might go, man, that seems redundant. Like a perfect example of this is in Psalm 139. Verse 6 says, such knowledge is too wonderful for me, too lofty for me to attain. And those are almost saying the same thing there. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me, too lofty for me to attain. Well, in the Hebrew culture, whenever you wanted to drive a point home or you wanted to be poetic, you would do it in parallel form. And so sometimes when you're looking at Hebrew poetry, you might see a line, and then the next line completes the thought. And so as you're going through that, you're going, hey, he's not making an objective claim on science or anything like that. Instead, he's writing in poetic form to help unveil truths that are, that are true about God That are true about his word That are true about his revelation And it's really beautiful as you begin to study it And so I would encourage you to um, There are plenty of resources out there And we can make a list of just how to read Hebrew poetry Because it will begin to open your eyes to the Psalms And other books in ways that You might not have understood before In addition to poetry We then have Wisdom literature And this is composed primarily of short maxims Yes Yes there you go. Mm-hmm. All right. Wisdom literature. This is composed primarily of short maxims or reflective language. And so we're talking about the book of Job, the book of Proverbs, the book of Ecclesiastes. And so one of the things about the book of Proverbs is it's making these claims, and they're not formulas. And so what do I mean by that? Well, you might read the wisdom literature, and you might read Proverbs 15.1. A gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. Is that always true? No. Is it mostly true? Yeah. I mean, there are times that a gentle answer does not turn away wrath. I mean, I've seen street fights, right? You're like, what time is it? 10 o'clock. What? And you're like... Never mind, it's 10.15, so sorry. right? Or a harsh word stirs up anger. There are plenty of times where I've used harsh words and my friends and family are gracious enough to let that go. So the Proverbs aren't making these claims that say, no matter what, no matter what you do, this is going to happen. But if you read them in the nature that they were intended to be read then you understand, hey, this is a formula. This is by and large true. This is how God created the world to be. It is a, it is a proverb. It is a good thing for you to, to use gentle words. It is a good thing for you to not be angry or to stir up wrath in people. It's a good thing to let your speech be salt and light towards people rather than creating angry people, right? And so that's what you're going to encounter when you're in the wisdom literature. Then you've got the prophecy. This is composed primarily of calls to repent, predictions of future judgment, and restoration. And so there's a long list there. And so I'll stall while you guys write so nobody tells me (laughs) to go back. But no, you've got major prophets, okay, and then you've got minor prophets. And so you've got, you know, examples, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Hosea. Our boss, Blake Holmes, is actually in the building. He thought he could hide with his ball cap on over there. And so we have to make sure we do a really good job. And what Blake likes to do is he likes to give this really long test to people to see how well they know their Bible. And Nate and I both failed it this week, and so we're feeling (laughs) really good about ourselves. And uh, one of the questions he asks is he goes, Hey, are major prophets called major because what they write is more important? And that is, of course, not true. And so I put false. It was like one of the 20 questions I got right out of 100. Um, But why they're called majors, if you look in your Bible at the length and the stature of these books, they are long and lengthy, okay? And that's why they're called major prophets. They're not more important than the minor prophets. But then you have the minor prophets that are a little bit shorter and all of that. When you're reading prophetic material, it's important to note a couple of things. The first one is who was it written to? So to give you a little bit of history, when the prophets are written, what has happened is against God's wishes, the, the, the kingdom of Israel has split, okay? And you've got a northern kingdom, and you've got a southern kingdom. And what God does is he sends prophets to the northern kingdom, and he sends prophets to the southern kingdom. And so the first thing you want to, and then there are prophets who speak to the different, they speak to the Assyrians, and they speak to the, the nation of Edom. And so in that, you want to know who are they speaking to? Because there are certain struggles that the northern kingdom had that the southern kingdom didn't have. The other thing you want to know is when are they speaking to them. And so what happens is these kingdoms, they split, and they continue to disobey God the entire time. And so what God allows to happen, because he's good and he's just and he's right, is he allows them to be exiled into different nations. So the north is taken off by a country called Assyria, and the south is taken off by a country called Babylon. So there are prophets that come before they're exiled. And so you can imagine what their messages sound like. Repent, come back to me. Repent, come back to me. It's not too late for you. I still love you. Please come back to me, you silly wayward people. Then you've got people who wrote during the exile. And you can imagine what those messages will sound like. Stay true to me, even though you're in a different land. Stay true to my precepts. Stay true to who I am. I still care about you. And then you've got the post-exile people, right? Where he's going to tell them, hey, I'm restoring you. I'm going to bring you back. You're going to come back to the land. And so knowing when it was written and to who it was written to will begin to give you context to understand what this message means. So how many of you all know Jeremiah twenty nine eleven? 11? How many of you guys have that memorized? What is it? Anybody want to just say it out loud? Yeah, that was perfect. She gets a gold star. Do we have any gold, gold stars? Gold star. Crown in heaven, I think. Is that right? I don't know. Yes. That was on the test. Yeah. <laughs> for, the, for I know the we plans have I have for you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Declares the Lord, Prince, and Prosperity, right? And go on and on. And how many of y'all have seen that on a coffee mug? I have one. So if you haven't, you can come upstairs. Yeah. So you read that, you think, what a powerful verse. Well, when you read it, and you understand that God is writing it to a people who have been disobedient to him who have been carried off into exile, and he's looking at these people who have been absolutely awful people, and he's going, hey, I have a plan for you. I have have a plan for your future. And then Jeremiah 29 opens up to Jeremiah 30, and he begins to talk about a new covenant, and we understand that new covenant to be Jesus Christ. And suddenly you begin reading Jeremiah, and you're going, oh, my goodness, what kind of God in the midst of total rebellion makes a plan to save rebellious people? That's a good God. It's a really good God. Because sometimes you only read about the exile and you think, golly, man, he is really angry. But if you begin to read these passages in the context that they're meant to be read and in the genre that they exist, suddenly you see a picture of a God who's so much more kind, so much more good, and so much more gracious than we can comprehend. And so that verse, although it's on a coffee mug, it means a lot more than just, hey, God's got great plans for you, there's a marriage coming. Someday, um, big house, right? <laughs> <laughs> I actually, I actually just bought a house. I'm just working on the husband. I don't know. I got everything else. So I got the car and the house. So if y'all are saying I'm kidding, we got a hand in the bag.
1: Yeah, y'all can all y'all. If y'all know of anybody, no, no, then no, that flood was her real. email that inbox. That was not
0: real. That was not real. I'm I'm good, I'm content. Awesome. I can do all things through Christ. Through <laughs> yeah, <Christian>. right.
2: <laughs>
0: there you go, man. Actually, Nica,
2: I wanted to mention that the New King James translation of Jeremiah twenty nine eleven starts out with, For I know the thoughts I think toward you,
0: says oh, okay. the Lord. There you go. Well, Russ so sure. is our resident Bible scholar. He knows everything about the Bible. He would have aced that test. So Stay. thank you, Russ. <laughs> Any questions on the prophecy before we move on? Nope? All right. We'll move on then. Then you've got the epistles. And so just to give you an idea what... Where they fall, um, and you can have this little, right there, you start writing them down. So, commodes primarily of expository discourse and calls to action. And so, what does that mean? Well, like we said earlier, you've got the Old Testament law, and, and God is telling the people of Israel, hey, this is who I am. They rebel. And so, we have the prophets that come on the scene, and the prophets are giving the message of, hey, there's a, there's a new covenant coming. Repent and come back to me. They don't. So, and Isaiah tells you, hey, there's a, there's a king that's coming. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all talk about that king, which you all know to be Jesus Christ. And then, after he dies and resurrects and he goes up to heaven, we have the books of, book of Acts, and then we have all these letters primarily written by Paul and also written by Peter and others in the New Testament. And so, so many people spend all their time in the epistles. And so let me help you understand the genre that they're written in. They are, they are, they are calls to action, Right? So they're answering the question, in light of this story about Jesus, in light of who he is and what he's done, how then shall I live? And so you'll see a lot of commands in them. And so one of the ways that I like to to study the epistles is just go through, and there's a thing called acts, right? And you can just, or um, specs, sorry. And so you just talk about uh, S-P-E-C-S, there's sins to avoid, promises made to me. Um, whatever the E stands for, uh, C is commands, and then, um, help me out, guys, we teach this every year, well, I, examples, that's my boss over there in the corner. Uh, hey, Blake,
1: do you need the mic, man? Yeah, let's <laughs> mic him up, and
0: then what's the last S, Blake, or is it just spec, there's only spec, well, it's fine, yeah, take the spec out of your eye and learn your own... Stay silent when I'm teaching. <laughs> <laughs> <That's laughs> uh, yeah, and so, you know, an example of this is you've got uh, Ephesians 4.1. Walk in a manner worthy of your calling. That only works if you know Jesus, right? Because we could become legalists, and if you skip all the books before that, and you just get to the epistles, and suddenly you go, hey, do this, don't do that. I mean, how many of y'all attend on Sunday? We're going through James, right? There are a lot of commands for us to follow in the epistles, so it's important to understand that Paul and James and all of these authors are rooting it in a deep, deep understanding that it's all in light of what Jesus has done. So these calls to action are only following having known and been changed by Jesus Christ. And so what do I mean by that? Well, part of, part of being an excellent stu- student of the word is not being a poor then teacher of the word. And so what I mean by that is, let's say you're meeting with a friend who's a non-believer, and suddenly you've got a list of do's and don'ts for them from the epistles, but they don't know Jesus Christ. These are not calls to action for those who don't know the Lord. And how do we know that? Because when you begin reading them, most of them start out the same way. Paul, an apostle of Christ, to the saints in Rome, to the saints in Corinth, to the saints in Thessalonica. It is written to believers, And so I would take that very seriously as you begin to study the word, going, who is it written to? Is it written to believers? Is it written to non-believers? If it is written to believers, then it's written to me. And what am I being called to do in light of this passage? And it's some powerful stuff. Whenever I want to get my my booty kicked around, I try to turn to Paul. And I'm like, oh, yes, I should be doing more. Um, And then finally, the last genre being apocalyptic. And so composed primarily of literature that focuses on the future or the end times, and so the two big examples are Daniel and Revelation. If you missed Sticky Pages two years ago, um, I guess it was three years ago now, where uh, Bobby Crotty taught on this, I would highly recommend you pull the audio up and and listen to his teaching on Revelation. It is an often overlooked book. Um, So many people read it, and they think, man, that sounds really scary. What's to come? And I just want you to know the reason why it was written is really to give believers hope. It's to give believers hope to go, hey, all of this chaos and all this craziness is going to go down in the midst of all of that, I'm okay. I'm okay, because I know Jesus Christ. And so, I used to avoid Revelation, because I didn't know it, but uh, I would recommend that you begin to under- read it and understand it, because, again, all scripture is profitable for teaching and correction and rebuke. not all-, all scripture. And so, if that's a book that seems intimidating to you, that's a resource to you that Bobby Crotty can really help you with. So... Any questions on genres and or anything you'd like to add?
1: Yeah, I was just going to add one thing about um, a, a point that she started to make a minute ago about the the fact that um, the, the, especially the imperatives that we find in Scripture are uh, especially in the New Testament are for um, primarily people who are following Christ. Now you can you can follow those things and and live a, a better life. I mean, it, there's a pragmatism about it, like it actually works, right? But, um, but there's a, there's a doctrine in, in, uh, in hermeneutics, and hermeneutics is just the $500 word for what Nike is about to show you, a Bible study method. But <clears throat> there's a doctrine called illumination, and, and illumination is, is what we believe about. Um, we, we believe as Christians that when someone makes a faith decision and God calls them and someone responds in faith to Christ, that they are actually indwelt by the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity. And that, and that the Holy Spirit is the one who is opening our eyes to be able to accurately, um, not only accurately do the things that Nike is about to take you through, but also um, is empowering you to live a certain type of life. And so there's a difference between someone who is just white-knuckling, I just got to try really hard to obey all the imperatives that I find in the Bible. There's a difference between that person and a person who is who is empowered by the Holy Spirit to... To obey God, and that through this obedience and this relational obedience, this relational interaction with God, then God is actually changing that person's heart, right? That that is the power that we see in, in Hebrews chapter four, right? Um, the the Word of God is alive; it's active, right? But it's alive and it's it's alive and active um, as as the person is is uh, illumined by the Holy Spirit and given the power to obey the way that God intends it. Okay. Does that, huh. does that make sense? All right. Think,
0: do we have a question in the back?
1: Hang on, hang on. We're trying to record this, too, so you can be on the World Wide Web. <laughs> go.
0: It goes I out to 47 countries. To repeat spec.
1: Oh, <laughs> repeating spec. She
0: oh, repeating repeat spec. spec, yeah, because I did it so well the first time. you remember spec? <laughs> yeah, so the S is sins to avoid. Uh, the P is promises made. The E is examples to follow. Thank you, Blake. Uh, And C, are commands to obey. And there is an S at the end. And I will find out before next week what it is. Um, Okay. So are there any other questions on genres before we move on? Okay. Well, this, this process, we pretty much took right out of that Duval book that we recommended to you guys. So if you bought it, I highly encourage you to read it. It's one of the best resources that I have read, and and I think Nate would agree, on how to effectively study your Bible. Um, There are a lot of methodologies out there, uh, but this one breaks it down and really gives you a clear indication of what are the steps, what steps do I do in order, and this bridge illustration that you see, we're going to continue to break it down. And so one of the things I want to say up front is when, when Nate gave you the overview of observation, interpretation, and application that we're going to do in the weeks to come, they're going to center on this process. And so if I've said something tonight and you're like, man, I'd like to spend a little bit more time on their town, and that'll make more sense in a minute, we're going to. Next week is going to be more time on, on the observation. So today is really just an overview to wet your palate and to get you to begin to think in these categories when we say, hey, their town, our town, the bridge, and all of that stuff. Um, and so if you look on your very last page... You have this piece of scripture, and this is what we're going to use tonight for our example. Joshua 1, 6 through 9. And I'm going to let Nate read it out loud to you.
1: What are we doing? Joshua 1, 6 to 9. Be strong and courageous, for you shall give this people possession of the land which I swore to their fathers to give to them. Only be strong and very courageous, which, and be careful to do according to all the law which Moses my servant commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right or to the left, so that you may have success wherever you go. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have success. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not tremble or be dismayed, for the Lord your God is, is with you wherever you go.
0: All right. So that's going to be our, our proof text now that we're going to walk through. And so the first step in the process is called Their Town. And what we mean by that is what is it saying to the original audience when it was originally written? What in layman's terms did it mean to them? And so what, the way that you come by this is using the steps of observation. And so what you want to do is go, hey, what did it mean then? What's the literary context? What's the genre that it's sitting in? What's the historical context? Right? Are they about to go to war, as we read in our passage? Are they in a time of peace? Are there kings in the land? Are there queens in the land? The answer is no. Are there judges in the <laughs> land? Right? There are a lot of questions that you begin to go, hey, what's going on when this passage is written? So many times, a, a, a tough theological passage that you're having a hard time interpreting, a lot of times can be settled when you go, hey, did you know that they were at war? And they go, oh, okay, that makes total sense. And so one of the ways that you can really um, beef up your Bible knowledge and the way that you interpret is to get a, a really good commentary that will explain to you the historical, the historical ways that were going on there. And so one of the things that is going on in the Old Testament is called the Ancient Near East. And they had very different cultures and very different customs. And so when you're observing the text, you want to go, hey, what historically is going on here? And so in our text, what do you observe? What are some of the things that you just see from the Joshua passage? And you don't have to worry about the mic. We're just going to (laughs) popcorn. Who is it written to? Joshua, great. There's no answer too obvious, guys. This is such a critical part. And this is what happens is it feels so obvious that we sometimes skip over very, very key things. Like so many times I'll be reading a passage and somebody goes, hey, is this for believers or non-believers? And I'm like, well, he just..." He just said to the saints, and they're like, oh, I didn't read that, right? And so this is a very critical step that is often overlooked, and when it's overlooked, you jump to interpretation, and so many times your interpretations are missing key observations. So it was written to Joshua. What is, what is it just saying to Joshua? In layman's terms, what is, what is he telling Joshua? What was that? Go take Canaan, Go take Canaan. yeah, exactly. Anybody know where Canaan is at? it's near mesquite um (laughs) right isn't that right yes still need a husband guys yeah go take canaan are they going to war yeah they're about to go to war and and what else do we get from the observation in their town this is kind of pulling on a scholarship do you know where they're at in terms of history so you've got the exodus has just happened and why are they about to why is joshua leading them and not moses Yeah, Moses disobeyed. And so now Joshua is taking over, which is pretty critical. He's the new leader. This is the first time Nate and I have taught this class. I mean, that's why we don't know specs. (laughs) Right? Okay, good. What you want to do after you do all of your observations is you want to write a specific past tense statement that summarizes what you observed. And so we gave you an example of it in your text there. After you see all of the observations, you write it down. You guys see that in your, in your handout? Yeah, and so it, it might seem laborious, but this is what great exegetes do, is they go, hey, this is being written to Joshua. Joshua has just taken over leadership. He's being asked to take a people group who are not accustomed to war to walk into the land of Cana, and God's saying, hey, be strong and courageous as you do this. Okay, that is what's being told to Joshua in the immediate context after you've done your observations. That's their town. Okay. Well, then you suddenly go, okay, so do I teach that? And I go, well, not exactly. You're not quite done with, with the process because then you've got this river separating their town from our town. And what I mean by that is it would, be, it would be a misguided thing for me to read Joshua 1 and tell you, hey, what this means is that when you go to war, be strong and courageous. Because the problem with that is that doesn't apply to everybody. Right now, as far as I know, we're not going to war. Not only that, we're not going to a religious war if we actually, Nate went to war. Nate is a veteran. And he will tell you the war that he went to is not the same as what God's calling Joshua to. And so we have this divide. And what our job as exegetes is, is to get over that river from their town to our town. Okay? And how we do that is we build a bridge called the universal theological principle or the principalizing bridge. And this is going to make more sense as we continue to walk through it. And in order to make that bridge, because you can't wade straight through that water. First of all, we're reading the English translation of the text. We're not even reading the original Hebrew of it. Second of all, we're not in war. So if we were to tell everybody, hey, what this passage means is it means when you go to war, be strong and courageous, then most of us will never have this scripture apply to us. But we know that all scripture is profitable for teaching correction. And so what does it mean to us today? And there's not a one-to-one ratio in this case because we're not going to war. I'm not a newly appointed leader of the nation of Israel. I'm not under the Mosaic Covenant, which is the Old Testament. There's a lot of differences going on. And so what are some of the differences that you guys see between what's going on in Joshua's passage and what's going on today? I've already given you some. You've got language. You've got we're not going to war. What other differences do you see? How about females in the passage? Are there any females in the passage? No. So should we ignore Joshua? Maybe? (laughs) No, you should not ignore Joshua. What else is the difference? What time was this written in? How long ago? You can just say a while. (laughs) while. Long time ago. Yeah. Exactly long time ago. What any other differences that you see that might go, hey, that's not exactly what's going on in Dallas, Texas, twenty fourteen. Nope, we got them all. Well, you guys named quite a bit, really. But our point in this is how big is the river is going? What is separating us from the original context and how we can understand and know what it has always meant, always, everywhere, and for all people, which is the next step, which is building the bridge. And what we mean by building the bridge is this, is that when you're building the bridge, you're trying to come up with the theological principle that has always been true for all people, for all times and everywhere. And so why this is critical, right? Some of y'all might read Corinthians, 1 Corinthians, and what does it say about women and their heads? Right. So I am either grossly sinning right now, or there's something going on between that passage in our town that isn't a one-to-one ratio that there are historical and cultural contexts that today we wouldn't say what Paul meant for everywhere, always, and all is keep your head covered. Instead, when you begin to interpret that passage, what you realize Paul is saying is women dress modestly. I've got my polo, I've got my jeans, right? That's the universal (laughs) theological principle. To get even more so, what about in 2 Timothy (laughs) (laughs)
2: 2? Yeah,
0: Yeah, he's giggling. (laughs) Does anybody know what it says about women in 2 Timothy 2? Yeah, keep silent in the church. So that's the church building. This is not. We are fine.
2: <laughs>
0: totally fine. No, we, would, we got a problem. Unless there's something going on there. And so our job as exegetes is to go, what is that bridge that is always true everywhere and always? Right? And so just to keep giving you more examples, Romans 14. Does anybody know what's in Romans 14? Nope. It talks about eating food sacrificed to idols. Is that ringing a bell to anybody? And Paul says whether you eat or don't eat, right, it's so that you don't cause your brother to sin. How many of y'all have ever seen food sacrificed to idols? I haven't either. Nate has, yeah. (laughs) But here's one thing that'll work. So what I mean by always, everywhere, and always is there are some things that were true in the ancient Near East. And then whatever you say is the universal theological principle, it has to still be true in Dallas, Texas, 2014. It had to have been true in 1200 AD. It had to have been true in the Renaissance. It has to be true in Dallas, Texas, Ethiopia, Rwanda, if someday we live on Mars, wherever we're going, and then 2,000 years from now. Because all scripture is still valuable to everywhere at all times. So Nate has seen food sacrificed to idols. And so is that scripture only applying to his situation? No. Instead, as you begin to do this process on Romans 14, what you realize is the universal principle is that your love for your brother should be greater than your liberty to eat food. And so that's what we do as exegesis. We begin to build that bridge of going, hey, God is telling Joshua to be strong and courageous as he's about to take the land of Cana. And let's just be real. What that means is going in and destroying humans. That's what that means. So I hope y'all don't walk out of here today thinking God has commanded you to go to Cana and destroy humans. But if you took the one-to-one principle, then you would have to believe that. You would have to go, well, God told Joshua to go into the land and take the land. So God's telling me to go into the land and take the land. Or the job of an exegete goes, hey, we're going to begin to build this bridge. And so what we begin to realize is even though God is telling him specifically go into the land and build that bridge... As we've done our observations and we've realized it, we've begun to see that there's a timeless and universal principle. And what do you guys have as your timeless and universal principle for the Joshua passage? Anybody want to read that out loud? Nobody? Do y'all see it? It's on there, right? Did y'all hear her? Did you read it for yourselves? Okay. Right. To be effective, we must draw our strength from God. Right? God has called Joshua to a specific task. He hasn't called you to that task. But what he has told Joshua is your strength and your courage are going to be drawn from me. So, that's a pretty good theological principle. Can I tell people in Dallas, Texas, your strength and your courage to do the task that God has called you to should come from the Lord? Can I tell you all that? Yeah. Could I tell people in in the 1700s that? Yeah, can I tell women that? Yeah, can I tell five year olds that? Yeah, can I tell Ethiopians that? Yes, and so on and so forth. And so that begins to become your litmus test when you decide that you think you've drawn out the principle, the universal theological principle from the text, is you ask yourself, is this always true for all people at all times? And if you can say yes, then you're probably narrowing in on your principle. The one thing I would also like to say to this is one of the things that you learn as you begin to study your Bible is so many times you think you've come up with something really profound and nobody else agrees with you. <laughs> you are wrong. Mm. <laughs> so I and the litmus test helps, but there are still times where people will read stuff and i go, what? Part of what we do in this process as well is that we do it with friends and we do it with community. And so one of the things that anytime any of us teach on the equipping team, we run things by our coworkers or we run things by our friends. And we try to make sure that everything we're going to say, somebody else has looked at and goes, yeah, 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 that sounds right. Because as you begin to study this text, you're going to really uncover some really profound truths. And as you uncover those truths, you're going to begin to share those with people. And it would be a strong admonition and and miss against what you're doing if you were to teach something incorrectly. And so, like an example, I I heard a woman teaching one time, and she was reading about the Ephesians 5 where it says, you know, husbands love your wives and women submit to your husbands. And she read it, and she did her process, and she built her bridge. And her universal theological principle was that women belong in the kitchen. And I was like, dang, now i got to rebuke you, (laughs) Um, you know. Because I'm reading that and I'm going, hey, you know, a thousand years ago, we lived in agrarian societies. Everybody worked in the kitchen. Everybody worked in the field. This is not applicable. Or if I took that same truth today and, and, I, and I took a bunch of single women, which is the world that I live in, and I'm like, hey, guys, y'all need to be in the kitchen. <laughs> we got a problem, right? There's a real danger in building your bridge on anything other than what is timeless, what is true and what is biblical. And so some of the safeguards that you have in place are asking your community, hey, is, is this what you're getting from this as well? Another safeguard is looking at other pieces of Scripture and going, does the rest of Scripture seem to attest what I am saying? Are there other places in Scripture that tell you, draw your strength from the Lord? Yeah, yeah. Are there other places in Scripture that say, hey, God is going to be the source of your victory? Yes, Absolutely. I told y'all, man knows the Bible. Russ, do you want to go on the game show network with me? I think we could win a lot of money. See how that worked? We're going to win. So that's, that's the next step, is building that bridge. And then finally, after you cross the bridge, then you've got to deal with the fact that we're in our town. And our town is remarkably different. Everybody in this room, I'm just going to go out on an assumption here and say you probably live in the DFW Metroplex. So your town is even different than, than Watermark Fort Worth. They're just, it's a different culture over there. Um, When I teach on Wednesday morning and Thursday nights, I have a very different culture. It is all females in the room. And so I get to say things and teach passages that I probably wouldn't touch in a co-ed group, right? I mean, we talk about, never mind, I won't tell you what we talk about, but (laughs) it's a good time, right? And so after you come up with your universal theological principle and you've crossed that bridge, then you begin to go, okay, so what does this mean today? How do I apply the text? One of the things that you don't want to do is become a smarter sinner, the reason why we study the Bible isn't so that we can win game shows. That is incidental. The reason why we study the Bible is so that our lives will be transformed by a real encounter with the God who's, who wrote it and who wants you to understand him. And so after you read and understand and interpret your Bible, it is absolutely essential that you apply the truth that you've drawn out of it. And this is the step that I would say is often overlooked in, in, in some of the circles that I'm in. That people are really great at observing, interpreting, but they are really poor in applying. And so in our text, from, from the Joshua passage, what does that mean then for you guys? Well, I, I would say, you know, for me, it's, it's trusting on the Lord as I'm getting ready to prepare to teach and things like that. Rather than the task that God has set before me, I'm making sure that I'm going, hey, God, will you help me do this? Rather than relying on my own strength or my own summation of my strength, would you be the one who helps me do this? But what about in your own life? What is the task that God has called each of you to? Some of you God has called to be parents. What a great task. And it's hard. I just learned that. I did not know that. Uh, I thought it was easy. thought it was fun. <laughs> Apparently it's really hard. Um, no, but it's, it's a hard task. Are you doing it without the Lord's help? Does it seem insurmountable to you because you don't understand that God's helping you with it? Do you sometimes rely on your own strength or, quite frankly, a 6 p.m. bedtime to get you through it? What about other tasks that God has called you to? Some of you God has called into the workplace. Do you bring God into the workplace with you and go, hey, this is not, I'm not charging into Cana, but God has asked me to charge into the business place, and I need to rely on him to help me to do this in a manner that's worthy of the calling as Paul has called me to? Yeah, there is application from this. So going back to the Romans 14 example I gave you, where it's love is greater than liberty, that your love for your brother should be greater than your desire to eat food sacrificed to idol. A modern-day application of that might be, hey, you're free to drink. God says go and do and and drink heartily unto the Lord, but you might be with a friend who really struggles with alcohol. And although you're free to drink, your love for your brother or sister should be stronger so that you just go, you know what, I don't need to drink tonight. I'm free to, but I don't need to. And I'm going to love my friend well in that. That'll preach, as Blake likes to say, right? And that matters. And so suddenly you're not just going, hey, I understand Romans 14. That might seem really cryptic to some, food sacrifice aisles, It doesn't seem like it applies to me or all of that stuff. But instead you step away from and go, actually, no, I need to love first before I exercise my liberty. That applies to everywhere, always and all, but that's contextualized to Dallas, Texas, where normally on Thursday night, y'all know what people are doing on Thursday night in Dallas, Texas. There are happy hours everywhere. But you chose to be here, so you'll get a reward for that. (laughs) Not in heaven. I figured out that that was wrong. I've been exegeting in that time. Uh, Just kind of show you on one chart what this is. And again, guys, um, we're going to walk you through this step-by-step in the next coming days. But but like Nate said, there's a hermeneutic, and it's just a fancy word, like you said, that means how do you study your Bible? It starts with her, so I'm just going to point that out. uh, It's not a hermeneutic, it's a hermeneutic. But you've got the original audience, you've got a universal truth that is true everywhere always and for all people at all times. And then you've got a modern application. And the barriers that you need to come across are barriers of history, culture, language, geography, and covenant. And I just want to, I mentioned covenant earlier, and I want to be very clear what I mean by that. In the Old Testament, you're under what's called the Mosaic Covenant. And so when you read the Old Testament, you see there are lots of laws that the Israelites would need to obey. When Jesus came, he came to fulfill the law. And so now, rather than having to obey what we read in the Old Testament, we are freed from that. But our lives are such that we choose to abide in Christ and in that obey. And so when I said covenant earlier, I just want to clarify what I mean by that. And so we don't read Leviticus and think, oh gosh, I have a sore. I need to go find my priest. Instead, you go to the dermatologist. But, um, and so that's what this is the process in one chart of what we mean by that. And in the next coming weeks, we're going to continue to unfold that and hopefully clarify any slip ups I might have had tonight and then figure out what specs actually mean. So
1: so let me let me jump in for a second because I, I think that so I, obviously, as I said before, i lead the the apologetic ministry here at watermark, and one of the primary mistakes that drives a lot of people 's questions um, that that really cause barriers between them and the Lord is there 's a real lack of of, uh, of self awareness and and there 's a lack of understanding about the baggage that you bring to the text when you come to it and so I know, you know, Nike has, has uh, spelled some of these out for you, but, but uh, just, just having a healthy self-awareness to, to, before you even come to the text, to, to kind of pray and admit, like, like Lord, I'm, I am coming to a text that's really old, and I live in the United States, and this book was written on the other side of the world to a people on the other side of the world who spoke a different language and lived in a different culture, and, I mean, can you imagine um, so, so one of the examples, uh, cause like Nica said, I, I served in the Army, and, and one of my uh, tours in Afghanistan, the, uh, and some of you guys know this if you've been to the Middle East, so um, if you show someone, like, the bottom of your foot in, in that culture, that's really disrespectful, right? And so, but here, like, so what? We people sit like this all the time, right? I mean, Nica's doing it right now. She's disrespecting the entire room, you know? <laughs> A woman needs, to, the woman needs to submit, you know? <clears throat> so, <laughs> there you go. Cover that head. <laughs> so, but these are, yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, but but these are the types of things. I, I just use that as, as, a, as a, you know, a clear example. These are the types of differences that we're encountering. Um, uh, and, and I deal with these questions almost every week. Somebody will come in with some, some kind of baggage that they brought to the text. And they're reading um, their own... Uh, uh, just, just perspective into a book that did not share that perspective at all. And so helping people understand that, you know, hey, it, actually this is written to a totally different people in a different time goes a long way. And so as, as we as students of the text come to Scripture, then I would just encourage you guys as you sit down and doing your own Bible study, there's a healthy exercise of just starting that time and just, and just asking the Lord, Lord, um, show me, um, show me, help me see this universal principle that's true for all people for all time, because uh, um, there's a lot of things in my life that are blocking me from just very naturally seeing that. Does that make sense? All right. So I just I really encourage you guys to do that. And then also um, you use the word exegete quite a bit. Why don't you explain what that is?
0: Yeah. Um, exegesis is a term uh, that just means to draw from the text. So ex is sort of out of and you begin to study the text. One of the things that you'll be tempted to do when you study, because you're a sinner, all of you are if you didn't know, uh, is this thing called we call it eisegesis, and it's what Nate was just referencing, where, where you read into the text. And just like that, and even sometimes the baggage we bring is positive baggage. I mean, sometimes you just you have to admit that you're coming at it from a human perspective, and in your humanity there's a brokenness there, that in the fall not only did it affect the core of who you are, but it also affect the way you think. Mm-hmm. And so, so many times when you come to the text, like, how many of y'all have been in a Bible study, and people go, what does this mean to you? And you're like, oh, don't ask them that. Like, <laughs> I don't care what it means Wrong to question. you. <clears throat> and when you ask that question, what does it mean to you? That's eisegesis, where you're reading into. Eise means into. And so exegesis is going, what does the text mean? I'm going to pull the truth out of it and make sure that what I'm reading is what God intended for me to know. And so um, if ever there's a time that we use a word that doesn't make sense, just throw up your hand and let us know uh, we are fatally flawed in that we went to the same seminary, and so we have the same horrible habits. And so, uh, and so did Blake, for that matter. So. <laughs> but, yeah, so um, we would just encourage you that, to that point of what Nate was saying is we don't read the Bible to feel good either. You know, we don't read the Bible to either to justify. Like so many times I see people who just, like, Google, like, verses on peace, and then they just, like, pull up all the verses on peace. And there's nothing really wrong with that, but I would just encourage you to go, hey, what's the context where these, these verses on peace are coming from? Um, because if you're, if you're looking to have peace from God, it's not, it's not a good practice of study to just pull verses out of context and not know what they mean. Instead of going, hey, what does this mean in the context? And God's Spirit will give me peace as I abide in Him because it's one of the fruits of the Spirit. And so... Um, yeah, so I
1: would, uh, another one that's really clear uh, as far as application goes, and, and I know here at, at our church, um, uh, obvi- and, and for great reason, and I'm, glad, I'm really glad that we do this, but, but a lot of times we're like, hey, we need to give counsel from Scripture, right which absolutely 100% yes right but for a lot of people what what they what they kind of interpret that to mean is i can just pull any kind of verse out of the bible and like th- we got all kinds of like bible ninjas around here you know <laughs> where it's like i got throwing stars and i'm about to throw them at you you know like bam verse out of context verse <laughs> out of context and the person is sitting there like you're counseling me from scripture but i'm not really even sure what this means and anybody ever been in a part of a conversation like that? All right, it's it's fairly. I'm sorry for the last it, it, time. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> and so, what I would tell you is is that uh, um, I mean, we use Romans eight twenty eight, right? Who knows Romans eight twenty eight, right? For um, God causes all things to work for good for those uh, together for good for those who who love Him and are called according to His purpose. So, someone might um, now I'll, I'll just use Nica because she's easy to pick on. Um, like an nica may come and be like dude you know I, I really like this guy and he dumped me and and now you know what in the world am I going to do you know and and I might be like well you know what I mean d- God causes all things to work for good so that guy dumped you but what am I implying
0: there's another one coming. there's another
1: one coming that's that's better right so like my house burned down, but God causes all things to work together for good, so I'm gonna get a better house. Or I didn't get or I got into a school or I didn't get into a school I wanted again, so I'm going to get into a better school. Like, right, that's that's a lot of the of the and, and what I'm saying is, hey, no, I, I think when you read that passage in its context, then what it's talking about is the good that's work that God is working in you, is that He is He is taking all raw data that's taking place in your life and He's molding that to make you look like Jesus. Right. So so he's not promising that if the guy breaks up with you and breaks your heart that there's a better guy down the road. I'm you kind may, of done with this example. Yeah, exactly. Right. No, it's okay. <laughs> there's a uh, I mean, the, the, uh, the, the, the Scripture is silent on that issue. You know, S- someone, may, someone may lose a relationship or, or, or something like that, something that's deeply painful. And a lot of times we want to grab hold of that because we want to feel good about our situation when really, in fact, what God is saying is, no, I will take both, both good, bad, indifference. I will take everything that is happening in your life and I will conform you to the image of my son. So Tim Keller said this really well. He said, um, uh, he said uh, Jesus did not suffer so that we would not suffer, but so that when we do suffer, we would become like him. Right? And, and I think that's, that's, really just, that's just one example of, of somebody who's going through a really hard time, and Bible Ninja is like, hey, don't worry about it. God's got something better for you out there. Well, no, the, the better that God has for you is that even in the midst of this, that, that God is, is conforming you. He's making you look like Jesus, right? And, so, uh, and, and that applies for, for things that, that uh, can just be um, not that big of a deal, happenstance-type stuff. It can also apply for the, my, my friend right now whose wife just abandoned him, right? Um, and, and I'm you know, and, and helping him through, through this to say, hey, I know this is hard, and, and the thing that has been done to you is bad. It's wrong, right? And yet um, God is using this raw data to make you like his son. So that's just, that's just one example. I mean, you gave the Habakkuk one earlier, but um, just realizing that we're bringing this to the text, we're bringing our own desire to make the Bible say what we want it to say, and so just a really healthy... Um, a really healthy, humble posture to say, you know what? Um, I'm, acknowledge- I'm acknowledging that, Lord, and I'm asking you to help me see through it so that I can not um, mold you into a God of my own making, but that I can see you for who you truly are and worship you for who you are. All right?
0: He's the deep one. <laughs> <laughs> Any questions on this? Don't be shy.
1: Yeah, so we wanted to leave the last 15 minutes or so um, for a Q&A. So this is kind of the open mic time. We intentionally did this, so we're not, like, letting out early. Um,
0: we'll sit in silence.
1: Yeah, I mean, we'll sit here for, like, 15, 20 minutes and just be like, what? We yeah, both right have here, right laptops. here. Here we go.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: We all pass this back to him. Please, thank you.
0: Keep profanity to a minimum.
1: If you'll give us your name, that would help as well.
2: I'm Roger. I'll I'll try and keep the profanity to a minimum. Thank you. Um, So if you can take a passage in 1 Corinthians that says women should cover their heads and then say, well, that was to a very specific culture uh, at a different time and therefore doesn't apply to us, where are the boundaries around that principle where you can't then say, well, Romans 1 says you can't be homosexual, this is a different culture, different time, that's totally in bounds?
0: Yeah, Um, it's a great question. So I must have, you'll have to forgive me, I must have not been clear when I was talking about the Corinthians passage. And so I, I want to be very clear, it does apply to us. But what I meant by that is when you're beginning to build that universal theological principle, when you do that, as you begin to cross it, Paul is not just simply speaking to head coverings as much as he's speaking to modesty. Um, in that culture, women who went around with their heads uncovered were predominantly known as prostitutes. And so what Paul is addressing in that text is he's saying, hey, if you're not, gonna, if you're not a prostitute, don't dress like one, is what a lot of scholars are saying when they read that text. And so when you, when you pull out and go, hey, Paul isn't simply speaking about head coverings here. He's speaking about modesty. Um, then you're going, hey, the principal seems to be discussing modesty. Whereas when you go to Romans 1, I don't think when he says you've exchanged the truth of God for a lie and you've exchanged unnatural or natural relations for unnatural ones, I don't think that's a metaphor. I don't think he's speaking of anything. I think he's directly addressing homosexual behavior. And so when you begin to build that bridge, sometimes there is a one-to-one ratio where you say, hey, God is addressing homosexuality here, and that's the same thing that he's addressing today and in in all times and in all places. And so there are going to be parts of Scripture where it says, hey, go and sin no more. What that means is go and sin no more. Um.
1: Yeah, Yeah, and I would also say there's also a principle as well that uh, the guys that that wrote the book that uh, we're recommending uh, for you were mentors of mine, and and they they taught this to me, that if something is taught um, in the Old Testament and is established law in the Old Testament, and then Jesus repeats it, and then it's repeated um, kind of after the institution of the New Covenant— then then that, that's about as clear as a universal principle as you can get. And so I would say that, that uh, the New Testament's teaching on homosexual behavior it, as, as being deviant is, is one of those principles. Does that, does that answer your question? Okay, yeah. Anybody else? It's a difficult thing, though, all right, especially yeah. in our culture, and we don't want to minimize um, the, the fact that people, um, even people in this room, right, um, uh, struggle with this issue. And so um, there needs to be a lot of grace. What we don't want to happen is, hey, Old Testament moral law, you know, Jesus speaks against immorality, you know, and then Paul, bam, slams people. So you, you need to just get in line, right? Um, we also need to come to the table with, with a healthy understanding of the complexity of the issue and bring um, a lot of of, uh, of love and care um, to the table, right? Yep, anybody else? Got about 120 in here. Somebody's got to have something.
0: You got someone right there, name.
2: Somebody else? Oh, yeah,
1: here we
0: My name is Andy,
2: and I'm thinking about the difference between isogesis and application. And.
0: Sure. Do Nate, do you want to take that?
1: Sure, yeah. So so uh, one of the first slides that, that we showed was um, uh, bad theology um, turns into chaotic living, right? And so, uh, as Nica said before, eisegesis is where we bring our preconception and we read our own meaning into the text. So there's a meaning that's not even in the text, but we're just making it say what we want it to say. So that's eisegesis. Well, what obviously what that creates is that creates... Um, To use the the other um, image that I've talked about a couple of times tonight is that we're molding an image of God into our own making, which frankly looks a lot like who?
2: It looks a lot like us. (laughs) Like,
1: you know, I really am interested in worshiping me. So I'm going to like make a God that looks like me and then worship that God. It happens all the time. And so um, I, I think when we're talking about eisegesis, then typically what ends up happening is is the application that comes out of an uh, out of isegesis is very self-serving. It, it doesn't, and we'll get to week uh, week four, I believe, um, here where, when we talk about application, and we'll dive pretty deeply into um, h- how do we determine what is a, a solid application for this or not. But I can guarantee you that whatever application is coming out of isogesis is not the right application. Does that does that answer your question?
0: Yeah, I would also add to that, um, a big part of it, we should have probably even included this as a slide just to hit it on. this is something that is really guided by the Holy Spirit um, mm-hmm. as you begin to do this. And so, Jesus says, hey, I'm going to take my own theology, I'm going to pour it into the text, and from that, I'm going to create my own truth from it. Application, if doing it appropriately goes, hey, I have allowed the Holy Spirit to guide me in this, to show me the theological principle, and then in light of that, I've asked God, how would you like me to respond to this? Um, and then as he prompts you, then I would say, do that. Um, and so that that would be I, I have never seen the Holy Spirit lead someone into eisegesis and mm-hmm. so that's part of even doing it in community um, just as you gather together that the Holy Spirit that's the same in all of you is guiding all of you to go yeah we're seeing the same thing here and in light of that I think my life should look differently according to X, Y, and Z yep, yep,
1: after all community is our middle name right
0: well mine's Lee, wait what I thought it was Adidas <laughs>
2: it's
0: Adidas yeah, right. Nike Adidas for me <laughs> that's funny Russ
1: else, yeah somebody back here
0: yep how do you um, go about a conversation where um, someone who claims to be a Christian has very literally taken some of the Bible and kind of twisted it Um, not in a negative way but for instance we're communicating with Mormons now And a lot of what they believe is very literally read from the Bible. And so how do you communicate about that and still stay with truth? Yeah. Um, Good question. Have you read John 8, where the woman's about to be stoned? You just stone them. (laughs) (laughs) I'm I'm totally kidding. Uh, No, I I mean. I will stone you. I I forget these things are recorded. Yeah. you know, uh, that is, I mean, that's obviously, I mean, that's the world we live in, I think. I mean, I think uh, not just outside of our, our worldview of Christianity, but I think in um, even within our community at times you see people who abuse the Bible um, for their own means. And so I think uh, what that does is we need to be very good at what, at what we do in knowing the Bible. I hear people so many times go, man, I, I didn't answer the door when the Mormons came because I didn't know how to respond. Um, and I think that that would be going, hey, how do I educate myself on their worldview? How do I educate myself on a response to that worldview? And how do I do it graciously, winsomely, um, in a way that, that God is exalted as we begin to walk through those texts? Because um, there, there are great resources out there that address a lot of, um, you know, a big part of the Mormon r- worldview is just that that Christ wasn't fully deity. Um, that And then it really just, Joseph Smith is elevated. And you begin to read scripture and it talks about, you know, not necessarily that it says verbatim that there isn't. Going to be scripture added to it later, but you begin to go, the canon's closed. And what I mean by canon is the 66 books of the Bible we were talking about. And so some of the things that they'll begin to bring up, we do have a response for in a way that um, good exegesis leads to those conclusions. Um, did you want to add to that?
1: Yeah, I think, what, what was your name again? <laughs> Renee. Renee. Thanks for the question. It's a really good one. I, I, um, I, I think, if anything, um, it, it, those types of, of encounters are really healthy for 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 uh, believers because it brings a, a certain level of motivation for us to say, Man, I really need to be a good student of this. right These are the like rubber meet, meets the road types of conversations and because as you ask that question I've, I flashed back to multiple examples of me when I was a teenager and encountering people who who brought up really good questions and brought up varying views and, and i 'm like ah. You know, I, I don't know, but I, but I can go learn and, and, and help you find out. Um, also, another massive plug for the equipping <laughs> ministry here, right? Um, we're, we're constantly, not constantly, but consistently um, offering classes. Um, so there's one coming up in October on varying worldviews and how to address those worldviews, October the 18th, right? So I, I don't think this is necessarily the time to go into, hey, here's Mormon doctrine and how we specifically address that. But I, do, I would tell all of you as well, don't try to make up an answer that you don't know, all right? It just, um, well, one, it's going to end up making you look stupid. And two, at, I mean, it, it's not helping. They're, you're just fueling their fire. And so it's perfectly acceptable and even encouraged for you to say, hey, you know what? That's a great question. And, and uh, um, I don't know, but I would love for us to maybe link up over coffee. And then, you know, if, if you have no Way to learn this for yourself, or you don't even know where to start. Email Nika, and um, it's true. It happens all the time, and we we literally, literally meet with people yeah. all the time, and yeah. and are equipping them to to do stuff like that. So yeah, yep.
0: yeah. Thanks, Renee.
1: Were you going to say something, or, or someone down here? Oh yeah.
0: Write <laughs> oh, this down. Two one. Yeah. yeah no.
1: <laughs> Somebody hand up over here. Yeah.
0: Uh, this is just a resource question. So this is being recorded. Um, I, my community couldn't be here, but I'd like to get this information to them. Is is this a previous recording available, or when will this be? Available uh, there to is get a to previous them? recording available. Um, Where would that be? It's uh, watermark.org/media, and then when you there's a tab, and you can pull up core classes. Um, this will also probably be available as early as tomorrow, maybe through the weekend as well. And so, um, when you go to those links, not only is the teaching that just the audio—we're not being filmed, thankfully. I would have done my hair, but uh, <laughs> the audio. No, no, I wouldn't have. Uh, the audio,
2: <laughs> yeah, let's be honest.
0: I don't want to lie to y'all. The audio will be on there, and then also the teaching notes and the slides will also be available. And so, the previous teachers were Patrick Blocker and David Morrison, who are excellent teachers. Um, and then, and then Nate and I will kind of as we continue through the weeks, so they'll be there. Yeah, and and all. So just so you know, that's true for almost any class we do through the equipping. And so to your point about Mormonism or, or any other religious faith, if you go and just kind of search the Watermark website, you'll find some tremendous resources on there.
1: All right, anybody else? Yes, we, we pass that down to him, please. Thanks. Yes.
2: Um, I know in Revelation 22, um, 18, it says, if anyone adds anything to them, God will add him, add to him the plagues described in this book. And I guess my question comes from the Catholic Bible having, I believe, 68 books with two extra ones. How does that apply um, to that?
0: Yeah, Nate, do you want to tackle that one? Sure.
1: So um, so first, in your, uh, your first question on Revelation 22, which is a common one, actually in our great question session on Monday night, uh, we tackled this one as well. Um, there is uh, there's a common misconception because Revelation is the last book in uh, the order that it's in right now when you open your Bible. There's a common misconception that when John is writing the apocalypse or Revelation that he's saying if you add or take away from the entire compilation of all 66 books, right? Well, the problem with that is, is that when John penned Revelation, the Bible as you know it on the table did not exist like that. Right, so um, what John is, is doing is he's warning from, hey, don't tam- I just saw, I, I was just caught up into heaven and I saw something crazy, <laughs> right? So don't tamper with this. So what he's talking about the, is the book of uh, just the book of Revelation. Okay, uh, um, so that, that's a little bit of clarity um, as as far as that goes. But to your second point, um, yeah. So when when we're talking about the the compilation of Scripture the Catholic Bible does have what's called the Apocrypha in it, okay? Um, it's, a seri- it's a number of books that are just, like, added on. Uh, um, so it's the, it's the Old Testament, the New Testament, and then the Apocrypha. And the reason that is is um, when um, in the intertestamental period, and I'm getting into a little bit of stuff here. We might have time. Um, make it quick. Yeah, I'll just go. Yeah, I'll make it quick. So in the intertestamental period between Malachi and Matthew, there's about 400 years, 430 years, and there was a lot of literature that was written during that time. Well, there were also two major um, uh, uh, stations where they, or cities where they copied um, the Old Testament text, and and one of them was obviously in Israel, in Jerusalem. The other one was in Alexandria, Egypt, and in Alexandria, the Jewish community in Alexandria took the Tanakh, or the Old Testament, and they basically took the Apocrypha, and when they translated it into Greek, they added the Apocryphal books into the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament. Are you tracking me so far? all right? And so um, that, w- that happened in Alexandria, Egypt. So later on, when, when the Old Testament was compiled, um, then, then those, those Apocryphal books just got... Added on, they were never considered canonical by the early church. Jesus never mentions anything um, from them. Am I? um, Do you remember if? Am I right on that? I think I am. Um,
0: Jude might quote first. Yeah, Jude might,
1: but but Jesus never quotes from um, from from them as as if they're authoritative, right? So something interesting happened when in the 16th century there was the Protestant Reformation and a guy named Martin Luther you know, 95 theses on the on the church door in Wittenberg, Germany. And uh, and so uh, one of the Catholic Church's responses to Luther was because they were considered deuterocanonical or less than the canon, the apocrypha was. Well, there's some apocryphal teachings in those books that talk about um, uh, paying, or it, it, it seems to support paying indulgences to spring people out of hell. And so um, that was, which was one of the protests that Luther had against the Catholic Church. And so what the, what the Catholic Church did as a, as a response to Luther is they said, we're going to take the Apocryphal books and make, put them on the same level as the 66 books of the Bible. So it was, a, it was a response to a protest that they did this. Well, later on, a couple hundred years later, the Catholic Church corrected itself and basically said, no, there is a distinction between the 66 books of the Bible and the apocryphal books that were written during that intertestamental period time. And so we would say the apocryphal books are helpful to read, but they're not on the same authoritative level as the 66 books of the Bible. That was about a
0: six-minute answer.
1: Does that make sense? Does that help, your, help you? Okay, great. All right, we got about five minutes, so anybody else? them on third question here we go <laughs>
0: um, i was going to ask in regards to that question you said the apocrypha mm-hmm. would you put them on the same level as say for instance the books that go along with the book of mormon or would you not say that they're at all on the same level yeah in terms of so when he said whoa cheers stole my mic uh when he said level of authority what he means by that is we would say that scripture is the, the measuring stick by which we're going to Oh, yes, so sorry. So Rene asked when he said Apocrypha is on a, a lower level than the Bible, would those be on the same level as the Book of Mormon? Um, and, and so the answer to that, when he, he's talking about authority, and so when I, when I would say, hey, the, the Bible is authoritative in your life, what we mean by that is it has, um, because it's God's revelation about himself, it is the measuring stick by how you should live your life. When you, when you go, how, how then do I live? We would say, according to the word. Um, the Apocrypha is more so just historical in the sense that it gives us some information about what's going on in those 430 years, um, it tells some, some cool stories, but it's not authoritative. It, we would not say you need to pay indulgences to get out of heaven. In fact, we would say that it's absolutely wrong. Um, to clump them all together and, and call them on the same level as the Book of Mormon, I would not do that. Um, I think the Book of Mormon is is heretical. I think it's dangerous. I think there's very little truth in it. I think it should be rightly condemned as it is, that it would, that it would claim to be something that it's not, and it claims to bring salvation in a way that it cannot. Uh, the apocrypha, I would say, hey, it's interesting. Go read it, um, and it is interesting. There's some crazy stories in it mm-hmm. that are really fun to read. But I wouldn't also go, hey, I'm going to teach a Bible study lesson today and open up the apocrypha right, and right, go, hey, right. this is authoritative in your life. Good. Would not do that either.
1: Yeah. So especially one of the primary things the apocrypha does for us is it gives us a glimpse, a glimpse, a glimpse into. It's the, a glamorous glimpse. Uh, yeah. Exactly. <laughs> It gives us a glimpse into the historical context out of which, um, uh, uh, the, really, the New Testament story comes. And so you have the book of Maccabees, That's very, well, four books of Maccabees, that's very informative for us. So it's helpful, but we're not basing any doctrine on it, right? And so in that sense, it's, not even, it's distinct from even what the Mormons believe about what, what was revealed to Joseph Smith. And I think from there, we approach the Mormon doctrine as, hey, um, this is something totally different.
0: Yeah. Thanks, Renee. I think we have one more hand in the back.
1: All right. Sweet. Stand by.
0: And this will be our last question. It's
1: short. Yeah. Would that be, all the way. All the way to your mouth. Would okay. that be? There you go. Would that one be time. the same as Thomas? The Book of Thomas and those the uh, the,
0: <laughs> the Book of Thomas. Uh, have the Gospel of Thomas. Just so, uh, has anybody ever read the Gospel of Thomas? I have. Yeah, it's interesting. If you get to the very end of it, uh, this is true. You can Google this. Uh, It says that Jesus said that if Mary would like to enter into heaven, she essentially needs to have a sex change to be like Peter. True. So when people say the Gospel of Thomas should be included in Scripture, I'm like, "Ah, maybe not. Um, What makes the Gospel of Thomas interesting is it's written a couple hundred years after the rest of the Bible's written. It's not written in the first century AD. It's It's written beyond that. Why some people claim that it should be included in the Bible is a lot of it are sayings that Jesus said. Like, they're just pulling a lot of things that Jesus said or things that sound really similar to what Jesus said. It's really just a bunch of sayings. They're just independent sayings. And so uh, we would call it interesting. I would call it fun. Um, in seminary, when we would run into sexist, we would call him Thomas. And so it was, like, code for me and some of my friends. Uh, but, but That's I, what you meant by that. Yeah, yeah and so what yeah. Got it. Yeah. So one of the things that uh, we would say so so why things were included in the Bible is there's a little bit of test. Is one um, it was typically written by an apostle or somebody close to an apostle. Two, it was written um, before the first century ended. And so anything that's written four, five 500, 600 years later, we're going, hey, that, that seems a l- really late to be writing. Um, and then three, it's typically quoted by Jesus or widely accepted by the early church. And so um, scholars today are looking back and going, oh, the Christians chose to ignore the Gospel of Thomas. And we're going, oh, that's, not, that's not really fair. Um, but you can write a New York Times bestseller and claim that we're missing certain parts of Scripture and you will make a ton of money. So if you're low on funds that is anytime you attack the bible or god you will you will get rich you will also have an account someday before god in doing that and so yeah the gospel of thomas when you read it you go hey these are some sayings that jesus might or might not have said they seem to be circulating then there's that really weird one down at the bottom um but no it's just a text that uh, the gnostic community had and circulated it's it's interesting but um would not be on the same level of scripture I wouldn't say it's as dangerous as the Book of Mormon, but it certainly shouldn't be taken as authoritative. It's, it's something you read for fun to show off to your friends that you've read the Gospel of Thomas.
1: Yeah, and it comes, it comes out of the, like she mentioned there, out of the Gnostic community. And one of the reasons we even know that, as much about the Gnostics as we do is because the early church fathers wrote pretty extensively against them. And so if you want to read an entertaining text... Go read Irenaeus's Against Heresies. Right, these guys are not known for their brevity. They're also not the most gentle guys in the world. Right, and so, um, yeah, this this community was was probably one of the earlier um, uh, kind of heretical groups, offshoots of Christianity, and and they were producing their own text. I promise you, you go like Nica said, go Google it. I mean, you can read it online. Yeah. Go read that against the historical narrative of the, of the gospels and you'll very quickly be able to tell this is totally different it reads like a series of maxims almost like proverbs a little bit it's a series of sayings and and i mean just doctrinally it doesn't hold up to orthodoxy there was not penned by by uh, by apostles it come it came much later so they're pseudepigraphal books which means somebody wrote them and then they assigned an apostle's name to it who yeah, a, it wasn't apostle written by long thomas dead, is right? what they mean by yeah. that. they
0: claim thomas yep. wrote it it wasn't no. written by thomas thomas
1: been dead for a long he, time he been
0: for a while yeah yeah and when we say gnostic the gnostic group are people that claim you had to have special knowledge to get to god And that is fundamentally false to the Mm. gospel. The gospel welcomes everybody Mm. from any rung of society, any place in the world. Um, There's neither Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free, all that. And that's what makes Christianity so wonderful is you don't need special access. Instead, you just need to know the Son. We're going to wrap it up. Guys, guess what? We have Chick-fil-A coupons for you because the faithful are rewarded with fast (laughs) food. So, as you exit tonight, make sure you go slowly enough that when you leave here, you get a Chick-fil-A coupon.
2: Hey, gang. Thanks for coming tonight. I want to apologize. Um, I love that we have a full house. And um, we, we had, I think, about 150 people sign up, and we have well over 200 people here, which is awesome. Yeah. So
0: Chick-fil-A so for y'all. We are,
2: we are sorry some of y'all are kind of stuck back in corners and don't have tables and not a lot of room. And next week... Um, if I am correct, I think we got it reserved. We're going to meet in the loft, which is right above the town center over there. Most of you know where the loft is. But look for an email from us. I promise we will be more comfortable. Thanks for being here. Um, let me pray for us, all right? And then we'll um, let you go. Oh, let me say this one other thing, real quick. Um, shameless plug. If you're not on the journey, I really encourage you to mm-hmm. sign up. Go to jointhejourney.com, put in your email address and every day. You'll read along Scripture with, with the rest of the church, really with over 12,000 people. And what, what is just the daily habit, right, what Paul says, be diligent to present yourself as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, handling accurately the word of truth, which is why y'all are here. And I would encourage you to get in the word and start to apply these very principles we're talking about right there along with everybody else. And I think it will really bless you just a little bit. Every day goes a long way. And then as you make your way through there, as you have questions, come and fire away. Ask Nika and Nathan. They'll love it. All right? Let me pray for you. Father in heaven, I want to thank you for my friends, um, Nika and Nathan. I thank you, Father, for their discipline. Thank you, Father, for their hard work, their preparation. And, uh, Father, I thank you for each one here who's chosen to take time away from their busy schedules. Lord, they've got the pressures of family, work, personal lives, um, Father, just fatigue of being at work all day and, uh, and to take a couple of hours out of their day to come up here to want to learn more about how to read your word because they desperately want to know the heart of God. And I just pray that you would honor their time. I pray, Lord, that as we referenced earlier, that we wouldn't just become smarter sinners, but our hearts would be conformed more in the image of your son. We thank you for Jesus Christ. We thank you, Father, for uh, his shed blood, for the power of the resurrection. And that very important doctrine uh, Nate spoke of, just that illumination that for the believer, Lord, you still speak to us today through your word. You communicate, touch our hearts, and I prayed you'd open our minds that we would listen. In Christ's name, amen. See you all next week.